Well, open your Bibles, if you would, to Romans chapter 9. Now, how are you going to do that and make your pottery at the same time? That's the question. It's going to be a, a bit of a balancing act, and uh, uh, so you, you might just uh, have to kind of have your Bible on a chair next to you and then be working on this. Here's what, here's what I want to say right up front. That clay is your clay. Okay, you are the potter. You have clay. You have right over that clay now. You make whatever you want. Make whatever you want. I, I made this, this little uh, kind of bi- biblical-looking, very small water jug. I'm telling you, like, if you were in the desert, this would be good news. Other, other than that, it's not doing much for you. I even used a drill to drill it out so that it goes down there. And it, this is what they'll look like when they harden, whatever you make. Okay, this is, this is what I chose to make. And I think as we go through these verses, uh, what you make in front of you as I preach... And, and don't worry, you can do this. You can listen and create. Some of you who are ADD are like, yes, finally. You know, <laughs> fidget. I can fidget during the sermon. So work at this and uh, see what you can come up with as you hear these words preached. I think it will bring to life what Paul has for us today. The sermon is titled The Potter and the Clay. We're in Romans 9, verses 19 through 29. I'll just warn you up front. The first half of this sermon is most of the sermon. The second half, we're going to move quickly. So if you're scared that we're going to be here all day, don't worry. I'll just dispel that notion up front. Let's begin by reviewing where we left off last week. A very challenging sermon to our assumptions, but a very important sermon for us to know who God is and how He works. This is where we concluded. For Scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show, God says, that I might show my power in you, Pharaoh, and that my name might be proclaimed in all of the earth. And the conclusion of all of this passage is this. Paul writes, So then he, that is God, has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. He is free to do as he chooses with what he has made, as it were. And so you can see how that sets us up to where we're going this week. So verses 19 to 21, I titled, The Right of a Sovereign God. The Right of a Sovereign God. Now, some of you are not working on your clay. Come on now. Come on, get those hands dirty. If if you've got a white shirt on, be extra careful, okay? But get, get in there, start working that clay. The right of a sovereign God. Verse 19, you will say to me then, Paul anticipates the objection and he, and, he, and he brings it up for us so we don't even have to say it. You will say to me then, I hear it from the back row, Paul, Paul, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? That is a very valid question, isn't it? Why does he still find fault? The, 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 the conclusion that is reached here should lead us to this, at least you know, some question of this, whether it's an objection or not, we should at least be asking this question. If we really understand what Paul has said, we must go to this place. Why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? And, and I know that Paul probably heard this countless times as an objection raised when he was teaching and preaching 
on the doctrine of election. And I can say from my own experience, I have had this as well. I asked this question when I was learning this doctrine. And I have heard this question from many people over the years. It's inevitable. Sometimes it takes this form. If God is sovereign, why are we held responsible for anything? If he's that sovereign, then why would I be held responsible? Or the fatalistic conclusion. If he's that sovereign, then we're just mindless robots programmed by God. Is is that what you're saying, Paul? Ultimately, we have to ask the question, can we blame God for our sin? Now, this is an objection that is, is different. It's removed from a previous objection, but one of the previous objections we dealt with in early chapters of Romans was, if my sin makes him glorious, what's the big deal? Why would that be bad? We should sin it up that grace may abound. And Paul says, meganoito, may it never be. So let's just answer these questions resoundingly. If God is that sovereign, why are we responsible? The answer the Bible gives is he is that sovereign, and yes, we are responsible. We are responsible for our hard hearts, responsible for our sins. Are we mindless robots programmed by God? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. We are real people who make real consequential decisions. It just so happens that our decisions are sinful and they have devastating impact on our lives. We are held responsible for our sinful, hardened hearts and rebellion against God. And no, we cannot blame God for our sin. We cannot. Two things here are helpful for us to see. The two wills of God. We have to have this in our mind, functioning. There is what theologians refer to as the sovereign will of God. That is his will of decree. This is never violated. It is never trespassed. No one ever crosses the sovereign will of God. Whoever could ever do that would then be God. This is what we're saying. In order for God to be God, He has to be the ultimate one who is free. Free above all others. So He is the Creator. Everything that He has made operates within the sphere of His sovereign will. You can say it this way, nothing has ever happened on this earth, nor will ever happen, that will break or or violate his sovereign will. Now, when you come down to his revealed will or his commanded will, we break that every day. Okay, so to understand the nature of our sin. The nature of our sin is not that we are taking God's place and threatening God at all. It is that we have been made by God, put in our place, and we say, no, I don't like the place you put me. I want my will. I want my way. I don't like your will. I don't like your holiness. I I, I transgress it. The law of God, the Ten Commandments, for for example, they're calls uh, both to, to do things and calls to avoid things, and we break both, don't we? No one in this room can say that they have ever broken the sovereign will of God. And at the same time, no one in this room can say that they have ever not broken the commanded will of God. We are all lawbreakers, but we are will breakers of God at the level of his commandments that that meet us in holiness. And as we saw in Romans, even his revealed will stirs up our rebellion. 
We see light and we say, I hate that. Don't want that. That's our fallen rebellion instinct. It's important to have that in view and it gives us at least a glimpse into some of the mystery of why God is sovereign and we are responsible. You see how it comes together in this? Let no one say when he is tempted, James says, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. What is our desire? Our desire is corrupt. Our desire is spiritually dead, left to ourselves. Our desire is for sin, and that's what we do. We want it, and we do it. And we cannot blame God. This is your fault. This, my hard heart is your fault. <clears throat> we saw at the end of last week when God hardens a heart, He does not put evil in a person that is not present already. He releases us to the evil that's in us and says, restraints removed. Lifting the brakes, I give you over to your sin. That is what it means to harden a heart. And so we have this mysterious coming together of these two realities that have vexed humanity for years and years and years. And frankly, today we will not in any simple way resolve this. The absolute sovereignty of God is taught, declared. It is unmistakable in Scripture. To deny it is to, 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 to profane the name of God. It's blasphemy. The human responsibility for sin, hardness of heart, rebellion, and rejection, that too is also clearly taught in the Bible. And it is blasphemy to say, I am the victim here, God. You're the perpetrator. You're the cause. You're the reason that I sin. You can't say that. They're both true. I'll give you a couple examples of this. God is free in amazing ways to righteously even employ human sin to accomplish his ordained purposes without diminishing human responsibility. We bump into things here that are beyond us, don't we? But we know this is true. The Bible declares it even from the first book in your Bible. We see this. Joseph's brothers, you meant it for evil, sin, selling him into slavery, treating him terribly, covering up as if he was dead, making money off the sale of their little brother. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. That you would be here in Egypt and that he would save many through the place that he put Joseph. Pharaoh, just in view here, that's the bridge that brought us to this place, right? Pharaoh hardened his heart, the Lord hardened his heart, and God displayed wonders as he delivered his people. Think of Job and the Chaldeans. Job, through the agency of Satan, given permission to go and disrupt Job's life, the Chaldeans, okay, this, this is people, were stirred up to go and steal his camels, to take all of his camels. This is riches back in the day. Think of this. The riches of Job in, in his camels, in his herds, were taken and his servants were all killed, but one who made it to run and tell Job what had happened. Can the Chaldeans say, Lord, that's your fault that we violated Job in this way? No, they can't. They did it, but they did it 
through the purpose of God being accomplished. This is an amazing thing. Give you a glimpse of what we saw even in Isaiah as we studied in Isaiah this week, the king of Assyria. Listen to these amazing coming together of sovereignty and responsibility. When the Lord had finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem. Let me just catch us up to speed. The work was to chop down the tree of Israel. That is to leave a stump, but cut down the tree to judge them severely. He did so by bringing in the Assyrians. Okay, now listen to the way he holds the king of Assyria to account even as he used the king of Assyria to judge his people. He will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes, for he says, by the strength of my hand, I have done it. I have chopped down the tree. By my wisdom, for I have understanding. I remove the boundaries of peoples. I plunder their treasures. Like a bull, I will bring down those who sit on the throne. So here's the king of Assyria boasting over the tree of Israel that he has chopped down. In the judgment of God, he has done these things. Listen to God's reply to this king. Shall the axe boast over him who hews with it? Or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it? And then God goes on to pronounce judgment on the king of Assyria. He says, listen, O king, you think your power, you think you did this? I did this. You are the axe in my hand, king of Assyria. I chopped down the tree. And I used you to do it. Does that mean the king of Assyria is not responsible for his sin? No, he answers for his sin, for the pride in his heart, for his boasting, and on and on comes together in mysterious harmony in the work of God. Another example of this we find in Acts chapter 4. You've seen this before, but I bring it up again because it's, it's mind-blowing. We read in Acts 4, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate. This is speaking to the Lord along with the Gentiles and the peoples of of Israel, to do whatever your hand, Lord, and your plan had predestined to take place. There's only a handful of uses of this word in the New Testament. This is one. And it speaks of God assigning this destiny beforehand that this sin would take place, the most spectacular sin the world has ever known. Let's Let's just remember this. This is the cross. This is the murder of a sinless man. God was killed that day. How was he killed that day? Well, at the hands of sinful men. Yes. How was he killed that day? By the hand of God. Yes. It pleased the Father to crush the Son. He did it ultimately. And he did it through the hands of sinful men who are held to account. And listen to the prayer of Jesus. This is spectacular. He says, Oh, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. If they had any idea that the murder, the sin, the atrocities they are committing would carry such consequence, maybe they would change their course. So, 
It's possible that God in His grace and mercy, not because they deserved it, but because of the prayer of Christ even as the nails were pounded, it's possible that these were forgiven. These individuals who did these acts. Hmm. Jesus prayed for us in that moment too because we did that. We pounded the nails with our sin. We put Him there. With love of God for sinners. Yes, God is absolutely sovereign over all that takes place and we are responsible for our sin. Paul says, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? And at this point, we're just like, okay, Paul, we're dying for an answer here. Just make this simple for us. Maybe he'll start talking about free will. Right? That maybe this is that spot in our Bibles we've always hoped to find where it just makes it super easy and we're like, oh, it's the free will of man, guys. That's the deal. Super simple. It's not here either. Listen to his response. In fact, it's a, it's a little shocking. Who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Who are you, O oh man? You feel the O oh man there? What's he saying? creation dirt who are you oh puny little man to talk back to god the words here are more than just i, I lord i have a question it, that's that's not wrong asking questions to the lord working to understand that's good we do that that's what we worked at all week long right that's our work this is not that this is objection. This is, uh, it carries, carries disagreement. Disappro- I disapprove of you, God, for the way that you choose to work. I condemn you. I judge you. I pass judgment on the Almighty God because I know better. Because I have a greater sense of justice than God And all of a sudden, we're forced to kind of pause here and say, it's good to try to understand. It's good to wrestle. But oh, it's very dangerous. And oh, how easy we can move into a place where we would somehow pass judgment on the God of all creation. We are creation. We are not equipped to to judge God. We We don't have the resources. We are limited in our view small little man we are. God is the sovereign. This is what Paul is calling us to. Will what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Hmm. There's a lot of that happening in our day, isn't there? I don't like the person that I am. I want to be different. I want to change my gender. I want to change my face. I want to change everything about me. I want to self-determine. Do you feel that? Friends, that is a sinful instinct. Self-determination is the epitome of rejection of sovereignty. Will what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? 
Jeremiah 18.6 comes to mind. Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. I'm the potter. You're the clay. We, we are the clay. This imagery is powerful. Let's see what you're making. Where are we at? How's it going? Uh, what are we making over here? Give me, give me some things. What, what do we got? Anyone? Running through life. Running through life. Okay, good. We've got a foot. I love it. We got a cross. A, a heart. Yes. What else? Over here. What are we making? A snake. Anyone making a snake? That's not hard. Just do this. <laughs> right? That's my go-to. I'm making a snake. Okay, we got a heart. Anything else? Look at that. Is that like a... Dave, you're a potter, man. It's a funnel. It's a funnel and a horse. <laughs> a good, good. Now, I want you to look at what you've got in front of you. It's still in process. Probably you're still forming and shaping. Look at that and imagine that clay saying to you, hey, what do you think you're doing? Who gave you the right to make what you're making? I don't like what you're doing. I disapprove of you. I'm angry. I judge you. Do you see what Paul's getting at here? How ludicrous it is. How crazy. First of all, if your clay starts talking to you, there may be other problems, okay? But can you imagine all of a sudden, I'm like, wow, that's so cool. And then I see this frowny face and the blips start moving. Moron. Why would you make me like this? I wanted to be a, a horn like Dave, not a pot. How dare you, oh potter. Look at his hands. Look at his work. This is a messy work. The God of all of creation would stoop down to the dirt to work with the sin-stained clay of us. And we would answer back to God, talk back to God, disapprove of His work. We bounce immediately into the mystery of God here. Paul, I think, rightly calls us to, to pause. Friends, when you read your Bibles, there are moments where you will bounce into mystery. You will, you will bump up against it. It, it, it. It's everywhere in your Bible. And your response when you do is important. A response of humility to cover your mouth and say, Lord, I, I don't understand, but I trust you. I trust you. A and, and I may never understand, but you are good, you are righteous, and you have rights as the sovereign. Listen to God's response to Job. It's not all that different than this here. The Lord answered Job in chapter 38 out of the whirlwind. Think, this is, not, this is not the still small voice. This is power. 
This is the, the stirring of the wind. God answers with power and might. And he says, who is this that darkens counsel with words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. Basically, he's saying, brace yourself. Are you ready? Do you want to confront me? Well, you are about to be confronted, Job. And then in love, but with a firm word, God begins, <laughs> he begins to, 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 to basically rebuke Job, the clay. I will question you, little man, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth, Job? Tell me if you understand that. And then on and on. <laughs> it's like he keeps going and going and going as if to say, who do you think you are? And it is loving and it is true. And at the end of it, Job repented hand over his mouth in humility, who am I? And great are you. The posture of worship, which is fitting before an almighty sovereign, who is God. Has the potter no right over the clay, Paul goes on, to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Has the potter no right over the clay? He has rights over the clay. It says we are his. We, he's not ours. We don't possess him. He possesses us. He made us. We are his workmanship. He's free, and we are in our existence completely depending upon him. Your heart beats because of God, not because of you. Your air processes and keeps you living in this very moment because of God, not because of you. He's the sovereign who holds all things. He keeps the earth on its axis. He keeps gravity in place. All of these things sustained by the Son, Christ himself, not you or me. Hmm. Let's look closer at these words. These are important to, to wrestle through. I want to point out, first of all, that it's out of the same lump. Out of the same lump. The clay that God works with is a spoiled clay. We are fallen. We're, we're talking about post-fall here. This is the work of God. He takes sinful, fallen humanity, and He says to some, I will make some to be chosen for mercy. I will make them honorable vessels. Because they deserve it? No. They don't deserve it. No one deserves to be made an honorable vessel from clay like this. God in His grace, in His kindness, in His freedom says, I'm going to make honorable vessels here. And there are others that I will make for dishonorable use. That is, to rightly leave in judgment. Hmm. Is God free to do that? Is there any injustice taking place here? Is God not righteous in His freedom to do as He pleases from the same lump of fallen clay? He is free. God is sovereign and sinners are responsible. We have no right to say, God, I, I really think You should have made more vessels for honorable use. 
I really don't like the fact that, that there's that many vessels you've made for dishonorable use. And, and, and immediately we just stop. It's not my place. I don't carry that responsibility. God does. Don't, don't take that on yourself. You can't process that. Why is the road narrow that leads to life? And, and few are those who find it. Why is the path wide that leads to destruction? Who made them? Who ordained it be that way? God, not you. We take no argument to God in these things. If he so chose, there would be no path that leads to life and forgiveness and grace. That's his freedom too. That any are saved should blow us away, as we said last week. That's the shocker. So let's move on. Verses 22 and 23, God's glory is in wrath and mercy. It's in wrath and mercy. What if God, Paul says, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, notice who it's about, always. It's always about God. When God works, it's about God. Ultimately, foremost. Desiring to show his wrath and make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath be prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Oh, there's so much happening in these verses. I spent hours unpacking these this week and I, I have shaved my sermon down. I pray that we can finish before two o'clock today. <laughs> Let's just dig in. Okay. <laughs> we'll do our best. This question is answered. Clearly, this is what God is doing. This is what He does. So, let's just say this. Look at, this, look at these words. Desiring to show, to make known. There's motive in what God does. What is His motive? To reveal God. Highest and above all else, God loves His glory. He loves the display of His glory. Everything He does, He does with the purpose of glorifying Himself. Not us. If you ever hear that proclaimed, God exists to glorify you, run out of that place. It's heretical. God exists to glorify God, and that's the reason you exist, my friend. He reveals God in all that He does, both in His wrath and judgment and in His mercy and His grace. Listen to Martin Lloyd-Jones on this. Everything that God does is a revelation of some aspect of His being and character. In punishing the ungodly, He manifests His wrath and power. And at the same time, He shows His compassion because in the, of the way in which He does it. With patience. Enduring. But He also reveals Himself in His mercy and He shows the riches of His glory. God has endured with much patience. Why are there psalms in the Bible that say, Lord, why do the wicked flourish and the righteous suffer? You ever wondered that? It's because of this. It's because God is enduring with much patience. Sinners who invite His wrath every second of the day who would rightly be dropped where they stood like Ananias and Sapphira. 
right? Who, who, who invite his wrath to be struck dead like Uzzah when he reached out to stabilize the ark. Oh, sinful man, you are not holy. You should be struck down and sentenced to the eternal fires of hell. That you are not is the patience of God who is long-suffering, who bears with sinners in their railing against Him throughout life. The patience of God in judging unbelievers reveals to us some of the things about God. Number one, it reveals His compassion and kindness. He loves repentance. His heart does not delight in wrath. The, 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 the glory of God is not foremost in Scripture revealed to be in crushing sinners in His wrath. Foremost, His glory is revealed in His showing mercy and kindness and forgiveness. The patience of God in judging unbelievers also reveals increasingly, as Romans 1 says, that sinners are without excuse. They suppress Every single time we see a sunrise or a supernova or anything in creation that reveals His glory and His goodness and His, His, His power, and we say, eh, I could do better. There's nothing there. It's all natural. We suppress. We push down. We reveal that we are without excuse as we rail against Him year after year after year and don't receive from Him what our due is in that moment. There's a third aspect to it as well. He showed it especially in the Exodus, in the plagues. God reveals His power when He does judge. It is a serious like cataclysmic thing. Think of the flood. Roughly 8 billion people drowned by God. Does that say to you that sin is no big deal? Eight people saved by His grace. He shows us power when He judges. And friends, we just finished Revelation not long ago. We will see how the righteous judge of all the earth will tread down in an instant. Oh, Babylon, how you have fallen so quickly now rubble the great city of rebellion crushed we will rise up we will show god how strong we are we will build a tower to heaven no you won't god is not ever threatened by the raging of the nations as we saw in psalm 2 he laughs he holds them in derision. Let's examine these vessels. It's important that we not conclude things that the text does not say. Look at this now. Vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. That's one word. Vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand. That's a different word for glory. There's added words in the second line than there are in the first. Let's just point this out. Sometimes people say that they make this big deal about double predestination, and I have never found that biblically proclaimed. And here's why. Because of differences like this. There is in the first word a passive tense to the word prepared. Prepared or fitted for destruction. He is bearing with these vessels of wrath who are fitted or prepared for destruction. They are rightly destroyed. Okay? 
The second one is different. The word prepared beforehand carries with it an active involvement, which God says, which He has prepared beforehand. Active involvement. God has prepared beforehand. This is almost the equivalent word of predestination. God has chosen these to be vessels of mercy. When did He do it? Well, beforehand. He prepared them. He chose them. He set His covenant love on them to be vessels of mercy before the ages began. He wrote these names in the Lamb's Book of Life, and they are those whom God has prepared beforehand for glory, vessels of mercy. Now, yes, let's be clear. In ages past, before time began, before the ages, when God looked upon the sea of humanity and said, I set my covenant saving love upon these, it does imply, certainly, that the rest of the sinful mankind was passed over. Okay, So in that sense, yes, there is a, a choice to save that has implications for all those that are remaining. But it is out of the sea of humanity of sin that God chooses to save. He does not say to neutral, moral, um, upright, righteous people, I elect you for damnation. I predestine you for wrath and then they become evil. You see what I'm saying? That is the implication of double predestination. He is not doing that. There is not a neutral, like, okay, you get the good stuff, you will become bad and get the bad stuff. I'm the one that pre-programs it all, and bam, there it goes. No. We all deserve the wrath. Out of that, he's chosen vessels of mercy. There's a difference here. I think Douglas Moose says it well, Paul never uses the words call or the word election to refer to God's decision to leave people in their sins and the wrath they deserve. For, for this same reason, I prefer not to use the expression double predestination. I'm, I'm with him on that. Um, now, for some of you, you're like, okay, this is very precise theology. Uh, uh, you lost me. I'm sorry, but it's important. It's an important piece. It's one of the reasons people reject election categorically is because of mishandling words like double predestination. They think that God somehow makes people evil and then punishes them for it, and that can't be right. That's not what the Scriptures are saying. He saves people to make them righteous who otherwise would perish in their sins. All of the, the focus of election and predestination and calling are focused in that way. So, what if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared or fitted for destruction in order to make known the riches of His glory? Think of that. Notice the emphasis here. Not in wrath here. The riches of His glory for vessels of mercy, which He has prepared active beforehand when he wrote their names in the Lamb's book of life for glory. Let's move on. The final verses, I believe, bracket the conclusion reached last week. God has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. Now watch these verses. Build this out as Paul gives us these verses here. He has mercy on whomever he wills. I'll pick up on, on the previous verse. In order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy, mercy which He has prepared beforehand for glory, even us. And I, I want to insert here, 
Unbelie- uh, that, that's believers. That, that's believers. Even us, Paul says. When he says us, you first think, well, he's talking about the Jews. But that's not, that's not what he's saying. Us, all who believe, whom he has called. We are the called. That is, called to life. Not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. Now in the immediate context of Hosea, that was a reference to the Jews and the remnant, bringing them back in. But here Paul uses it in reference to the Gentiles. That's to us largely. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. What is Paul saying? What is the main emphasis here of the Lord for us in these words? God is free to choose, to set His mercy wherever He wants, on whomever He wants. So, we conclude, God has freely and unconditionally chosen to set His saving love on, and mercy on some from every nation, tribe, and tongue. How can I say that with such confidence? Well, because we know the end of the story. <laughs> We've read Revelation. We have what is certain to come to pass, and because we have that, we can know what the Lamb's Book of Life reads. It is reading names that God has chosen to set His love upon, and those names will consist of some, not all, some from every nation, tribe, and tongue. Now, did He have to do that? Do we deserve to be here together this morning worshiping Jesus? Absolutely not. He could have said, listen, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm going to save some from the Jews and, I don't know, let's say the Chaldeans. And that's it. I'm going to sentence all the rest of the nations, all the other sinners, they all are going to experience what they have chosen and what they deserve, wrath and judgment. God would be as good as He is. He didn't have to save some from every nation, but He chose to. Freely, he saves as he pleases. Hmm. I think one of the reasons is because the nations reveal his glory. God loves diversity. He loves the nations. He loves to say, look at the expression, the full range of my glory as it shows itself when I save and bring worshipers of me from the corners of the earth. Yes, the Jews, there is a remnant, but also the Gentiles. God has mercy on whomever He wills, and finally, God hardens whomever He wills. God hardens whomever He wills. As Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. We saw that just this past week in Isaiah as we studied For the Lord will surely carry out His sentence upon the earth and fully, fully and without delay. As Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us with offspring, we would have been like Sodom and like Gomorrah. What's he saying? 
If God hadn't saved some of us, none of us would be saved. Do you hear that? Friends, we, we have stored up judgment and we would rightly be swiftly and fully destroyed, like Sodom and Gomorrah, if it wasn't for the grace of God. There is not a Jew who can say, I deserve to be saved because I am a Jew. That's what Paul's getting at. But just the same, there is not a Gentile who can say that either. He has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. Salvation, my friends, is of God. We are completely dependent upon God. Which is the beauty of prayer and the confidence in our evangelism. We speak because we know we can't save, but God can. If He so chooses, He can save the hardest heart. And so we pray and we speak. God shows the diamond of His glory in mercy against the backdrop of His righteous judgment against sin. You ever been to a jewelry store and you see that diamond highlighted in the light? How does it show most clear and bright? Well, against a black velvet backdrop. You see it shine. It stands out. That's what he's saying. My mercy will show forth all the more gloriously when you realize what you deserved in my judgment for your sin. No one is a diamond who deserves to be a diamond. All of us deserve His wrath. But He makes us vessels of mercy. Trophies of His grace. His work and His glory. So our response this morning. These are passages that challenge us. They push us. They, they, they have a way of tearing down our assumptions of who God is or who He should be. They require of us in ways that other passages don't. Let's come back to this. Lord, you are the potter. I am the clay. Let's hold, hold up what you've made. I want to see what you got here. Okay, hold it up. Okay, good. What else? We got, yes, I love that. Man, pretty intricate there. Nice work. Let's see. We got a bowl over here. Good job, Melva. Nice. Okay. What's that? A sword. Yes, I love it. And a little table. A bird bath. Hey, that could work. You could even use that, you know. Okay, hold it up. And think of this now. Lord, you're the potter. I'm the clay. Look at what you've made. And remember, I never have the right to pass judgment on the righteous one. He has all the rights. I am called to trust. Okay. I want to close with four encouragements. Some of you have struggled with these verses. I understand. So did I when I first heard them. Oh, man. I had so many questions. That's good. It's good. But let me give you some direction in your journey. Four things. Number one, rely upon the authority of God's Word. Rely upon it. Don't rely upon your thoughts of who He should be. Let God shape who He is by what He's said in His Word. Rely upon the authority of God's Word. Secondly, rest. Find rest. There is a beautiful 
rest that comes in the confidence of his righteousness. Shall not the judge of the earth do what is right and righteous? Answer, always. Yes. Rest in that. You don't have to be the judge of the judge of all the earth. You can trust him. Number three, respect the mystery of God's sovereign purposes. His ways are higher than our ways. He, his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. We don't have the capacity to understand all the ways in which he works. And so we're called to respect mystery, not grind against it. And let it lead us to rejoice in the glory of God's sovereign grace. He saves whomever he wills. And he sentences to wrath and judgment all who deserve it and whomever he wills. That is his, ultimately his decision. And so we can rejoice in that, especially as we consider our own soul, our own heart. If it wasn't for the, the, the sovereign, powerful working of God to wake me from my sleep in sin, I too would continue as an object of his wrath. I don't deserve what I've been given. And so we rejoice. Someone asked this question earlier, and I think it's a valid question. Why is this glorious? Why are people around me rejoicing in this doctrine of election? And this is why. This is why. It's because God saves anyone at all. None of us deserve it. And He did it, not us. We didn't save ourselves. He saved. And that is Stunning. It's amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like us. So let's pray.